Coming to you from the studios at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we've got microphones in our faces and you are listening in. And this month, we welcome a former colleague of mine whose book comes out this month, y'all, on June 11th. Did I get that right, Tim? Absolutely. Yay! All right, cool. So everybody, let me just introduce you to Tim McMahon King. He is a writer, a digital communications professional, and the owner of Vagabond Strategies. And I know Tim from his work, his former life as chief strategy officer with Sojourners. He's doing a lot more, and you can definitely um, look him up. And even when you get his book, you'll see more of his bio in the back of the book. I had a fascinating conversation with Tim about his book recently and thought, okay, We have got to share this conversation on Freedom Road. So today we're talking addiction, but it won't be the kind of convo that you expect. We want to hear from you when we're finished with this conversation or even in the midst of it. Tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. Always use the hashtag Freedom Road Podcast so that we can track the convos. And I'm sure you'll have a lot to say about this topic. Seriously, this is going to be deep, y'all. Addiction is personal and it impacts many of us. And if, if it's not ourselves, then it's our families. And so we want to talk. Let's share this podcast with our friends and our networks. And let's really have a good conversation. So here's the deal. I was six years old. When my own uncle, Richie, died of an overdose on heroin. It was the mid-1970s. I remember his slow descent into hell. My earliest memories of him were just pure love. I mean, I really, really loved him. And then he began to distance himself from the family. I remember him coming in and out of my grandmother's house in South Philadelphia to ask for money. And then I remember the day when he carried out grandmom's furniture to sell for drugs. And I remember how sad she was. I remember her crying. That's my last memory of Uncle Richie alive. He was a beautiful young man until drugs were pumped into black neighborhoods across the nation. And Uncle Richie became an early casualty of Nixon's, air quotes, war on drugs. So I'll be honest with you, Tim. When I first saw your book, I have to admit, I was intrigued and I was disturbed. I was intrigued because I know you and yet I didn't know you. I didn't know that this was your struggle at all. And I was disturbed because I really, I racked my brain. I cannot think of a black man who struggled with drug addiction that got to write a book about it. But Tim, I endorsed your book and I invited you here because I opened the cover and I read it. And brother, let me just say, this book is important. It really is important. And the table of contents alone took me on a journey. I told you that. (laughs) So in the pages of Addiction Nation, you walk readers through your own struggle with addiction to prescribed opioids 
most people will be introduced to you through that story. But I think for folks to appreciate your book, they have to understand the path that led you to that struggle. Can you tell us just a little bit of that story? I mean, who were you the day before addiction? Yeah, thank you, Lisa. And thanks for having me on and also for getting past just the cover and starting to dive into it because it is, and as you said, like to have the conversation about this topic is so important because one of the things that I learned while writing this book is just how silence has perpetuated our addiction crisis. And it has been silence that has allowed it to continue to grow and spread. And while we're not going to be able to solve everything just by talking, that's where we need to start. We need to start giving language to these experiences. We need to start giving language to our stories. And that was where I realized, uh, you know, years later, I hadn't been talking about this experience. I hadn't told other people. Uh, I didn't think anyone would relate. I didn't think it was important. And I didn't think of it as something that other people would connect to. And that was when I began to start seeing story after story, especially in my um, home state of New Hampshire, it's consistently been up there, top two or three uh, per capita overdoses. My home county, Hillsborough County, for a while was number one fentanyl overdoses in the country um, per capita. And for me, it goes back, uh, I I was in the hospital for a few months. I had um, what they called acute necrotizing pancreatitis. Uh, it was caused by uh, a procedure that went wrong. And I was in the hospital in and out of the ICU, had a doctor stand by my bed with crying family members saying there's nothing else we can do. I was in acute respiratory distress and pulled through. Um, but I had been working at Sojourners where we met in D.C., and had been so excited to, you know, get involved in what I thought were these big issues. And then suddenly, you know, out of nowhere, my life stopped for a minute. And I went from, you know, I'm five foot 10, about 170 pounds, and I dropped down to about 125 pounds. Um, I couldn't eat. So I had to hook up to an IV every day. Um, It was almost nine months before I could start eating normally again. Um, and so I'd hook up to this, what they call a pick line. It's kind of a semi-permanent IV line in your arm for 12 hours a day. And once I finally got out, um, I just, my body was wrecked and I was on a ton of pain. While I was in the hospital, I had a little button I could push every 15 minutes to get more pain medicine and that wasn't enough. So they started giving me patches of fentanyl and I was sent home and Instead of getting better, instead of being able to eat again, instead of the pain going down, I was feeling more pain and I was taking more pain medicine. Wait, and just real quick, because the thing that really struck me as I was reading your book and also in the conversation we had is that this all happened before the opioid crisis kind of made it to the New York Times, before most of the country knew that this was happening. So you're like hitting the button for fentanyl and having patches and everything before there's a large awareness that this could actually lead to addiction. Yeah. When you, if you go back and you look at Google search trends, yeah, this was years before opioid crisis even gets onto the radar. Wow. Okay. Even though deaths were spiking, right? At this point, it was over 10,000 people a year 
Um, it was by 2000 that it was over 10,000 people a year were dying of um, opioid overdoses, but it wasn't it wasn't in the news. So well, tell us about that moment when you realized that you were addicted. Like what was literally happening in your life when that happened? How did you realize it? So I, I was lucky and I can remember the moment. And this is a scene that I keep coming back to in the book. Uh, I was a few months out of the hospital. And so at this point, I had been on opioids pretty consistently for almost six months. Um, and I went in to see my pancreatic specialist doctor and they were trying to figure out why I wasn't getting better. And he sat down and he looked me in the eye and he just said, Tim, you need to know you're addicted to your pain medicine. And every muscle in my body tensed up. I was ready to be on the defensive. I was ready to fight with him. I was ready to tell him, no, I'm not. I'm in pain. I need this. It helps me. And then he said, the second, the, what was so important was, and you didn't do anything wrong. And I kind of relaxed for a second. And, you know, I didn't realize until later, until I started really diving in, how important it was he said that to me. So there's this one great addiction researcher, Bill Miller. He's one of the world's leading experts in, in the field. And he did a review because normally I think of addiction and I think of like the interventions you have, right? Or those scared straight shows where you, you really need to sit someone down and hammer it into them that they're ruining everyone's lives. And he's went through and he, he did a big analysis of all the studies that have ever been done around that. And he said, there has never been and there is not any evidence that confrontational therapies do uh, work. And in fact, there's significant evidence that they do more harm than good. And, you know, people can point to maybe a, a circumstance here or there where someone that was a part of their story, but at a population level, um, with those kinds of tactics, people are more likely to keep using than stop. That's really deep. Because, I mean, I can't even tell you how many times I've seen a show, an intervention show, where they stage an intervention. And usually, usually literally just before the credits, they'll have a little um, card that comes up that says, so-and-so is still using, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's where the other piece that he then said to me that was so important was he goes, and Tim, I believe that you're in pain. Uh, and he goes, and I won't take your pain medicine away from you when you need it. If you can promise to take less when you can. And this was what was interesting of like, when did I realize I was addicted? I, I go into that in the book because I wonder, I had actually been confronted by three different medical professionals before this conversation with my doctor, where they said, we think you're faking your pain to get more medicine. And each time they were actually wrong, right? They had missed a medical complication. But I, at that point, had been so trained to have to fight for this pain, like for this pain medicine to relieve some legitimate pain. And so when my doctor said, I believe that you're in pain, I could let my defenses down. I didn't feel like he was trying to take something away that I needed. And then I read this great addiction researcher out of Canada, Gabor Mate. There's a book, Realm of Hungry Ghosts. And he says, all addiction is rooted in pain, whether it's physical, psychological, or whether it's open or hidden. All of our addictions are rooted in pain. And so when we approach addiction, 
as just needing to get someone to stop what they are doing, their substance use, and we fail to realize the pain that it's treating and the role that it's playing in their lives, we're bound to fail because all we're trying to do is to get them to say no. When in fact, what we need to do is to find a greater thing to say yes to that can crowd out the addiction and that can handle the pain. And what I really, really love about your book is that you don't just talk about addiction, which itself is a worthy topic for a book. But I love that you go deeper, dude. I mean, you really do. And then and, and just the implications of what you just said, if we only thought of all of the people that we know or even imagine have addictions, even just thinking about all the homeless people who are on the streets, just, just that population alone, like those who are the least of these, right? The ones who are the least in terms of the addicted. If we only saw their addiction as a manifestation of pain, wow, like what would how might that change the way we think about them? You know, you say in Addiction Nation, what it does is the book takes us on a path from beginnings to resurrection. Um, that's one of the reasons why I really love the table of contents, because it literally, you, like, you're on a journey in the table of contents. And yet in your introduction, though, you wrote, my story is one of early detection of things that went right it is a story that should be more common than it is. This story isn't so much about who I am or what I did as about what I had or more accurately what I had been given. And then you go a little further and say, I'm writing this book because if everyone had what I had, the opioid crisis would not be what it is today. So what did you have? Yeah. It, so the, the list goes on and on. I think one place to start um, is to recognize the role that trauma plays in addiction. And so, you know, the ACE scores, adverse childhood experiences. Um, if you have one point on this score, so they, you know, list out all of these different common childhood traumas. And if you have one point, your likelihood of addiction goes up somewhere like 40 to 50%. And then you get another point and it keeps going up and up. And so one of the first things that I had, and this is, I think it's maybe 15% of the American population. I have a zero on the A score. I had a, a non-traumatic childhood. Um, and so when I immediately think of that. Honestly, Tim, I can barely even imagine that because mine was so traumatic. <laughs> I mean, seriously, really? Like you had a non-traumatic childhood? That's amazing. Wow. Yeah, you I, really are a white man. <laughs> <laughs> Go on, I'm sorry. Well, and Go then on. I mean, you know, to walk through another piece of it, <clears throat> you know, I had a doctor uh, who believed me, and you know, they've done studies showing medical professionals pictures of people in pain, and as soon as you change the color of the skin of the person in pain, the doctor is less likely to gauge the level of pain correctly, and so. For me, I yeah, that, that's another another piece of it. And then you look at the other pieces that I, I had. A, I had a job. I was working at Sojourners at the time, um, and I had a job that they promised it would be there for me when I got back, right? And so I had that motivation of I knew I had something to come back to. I knew I had something to work towards that I wanted to return to. I had um, health insurance, right? So I also wasn't looking at the pills at the side of my bed as an economic lifeline. 
is one of the one of the early kind of ways that the opioid crisis was fed um, was low income people who you know maybe they hurt their back um, working in a mine in West Virginia or in a factory in Ohio. They're on unemployment, but that's not making ends meet. But they get this big bottle of pills, and suddenly they can go out and sell, you know, sell that and make rent for the month. And so, I, whenever we see, and this is true not just of the opioid crisis, but um, economic inequality can drive these crises because they, for a drug market to work, you need people who are desperate and ready to take um, like these huge chances to go out and sell drugs. And you don't have that unless you have huge economic inequality. And so I, I think of, you know, my childhood, the, the relationships and the friends that I have, and that's where um, I wanted in the writing of my book, there's, you know, this term that I kept coming across with, with different therapists and it's called their fancy term is like asymmetrical agency bias. And that is our human tendency to see something good in our lives and to um, say that that's, that's because of our own strength. And when something bad happens, that's outside circumstances that we can't help. Uh, where there's a great passage in Proverbs that actually says, God, may I not be poor lest I steal. And may I not be rich lest I forget thee. And this acknowledgement that I think too often, especially, you know, for a white guy growing up in a, you know, pretty stable household to say, I got better because I worked hard um, or because I had some sort of inner strength. And the more I look at it, the more I kept realizing that it was these, these gifts that I had been given. And that one of the tragedies is that most people don't have that. And especially in towns or cities across the country where you can't leave the place where you experienced your addiction and where you can get your addictive um, substance. So for me, I went home and I, I wasn't surrounded every day by someone offering me to sell, to sell me more pills or to sell me, uh, <clears throat> to sell me fentanyl on the street or to sell heroin. I didn't, I wasn't surrounded in those ways. And that becomes so much easier to recover because I'm not going back to a place where it constantly is. One study that uh, really illustrates this is um, the Vietnam War. Um, it was estimated that up to uh, almost half of all American GIs serving in Vietnam tried some sort of narcotic, mostly heroin, while they were over there. And between 20 and 25 percent, the military would have considered fully addicted. And when they kept trying to you know, rehabilitate soldiers to help them quit, it was an abject failure. It was, you know, 95% plus failure rate. And so they, the, the U.S. government was actually preparing for what they considered like another bomb coming home, which was, you know, tens of thousands, if not more, of service members returning completely addicted to heroin. And what was wild is they followed people, the, these soldiers, over time and tracked their drug usage. And it turns out 95% stopped using 
once they returned. And the people who kept using, for the most part, not everyone, were people who had been using before they went over to Vietnam. And it was how highly stressful the environment was where every day you're going out and you're worried you're going to lose your life. But then you go back to a camp and you have nothing to do for hours. And there's a very, you know, a low income population around you who's desperate to make a little bit of money. And so they're funneling in the drugs. So it was this perfect cocktail for addiction. But when they were able to remove people, have people go back and, you know, if you had access to the GI Bill, you were buying homes or you were getting college scholarships and there was something else for you to do that allowed you to uh, return to a life that was worth overcoming the addiction for. And so for you, you were able to go home. Mm -hmm. These are our stories. We're talking about Addiction Nation And you're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. Okay, everybody, imagine this. Imagine one bus, 40 women, three days, multiple encounters with the diverse stories of our foremothers' struggles to attain, protect, and maintain the right to vote. We're going to travel from Seneca Falls to New York City to Atlantic City and then D.C. And then we're going to spend one full day on Capitol Hill talking to our legislators about the need to protect women's right to vote. The Ruby Boo pilgrimage is happening again this year, November 4 through 8 on Freedom Road. Space is limited and registration is closing soon. So apply today at freedomroad.us. Okay, so Tim, you say you've been on to the edge in your book. So you're writing this book to share what you saw standing on that edge. What did you see? There's a, a few things that in, in, in writing this book, it, it was deep spiritual work too, because there were some things that I needed to confront in, in myself that I wasn't fully aware of. And I think the first thing is, you know, normally when we define a term, uh, we do two things. One is we separate it out from everything that it isn't. So we separate out a deciduous tree from a coniferous tree. And then if it's a deciduous tree, it's a maple or a birch or an elm. And so we keep getting more and more specific about what it is. But the other way that we come to understand things is our connection to it. And so I can tell you that the the maple tree out in the front yard of the house that I grew up in was where I remember learning how to climb a tree and sitting up in its branches, reading a book. And then you, you know so much more about that tree now. And for me, one of the things that I had to come to terms with is that while this addiction was the, the most present and the most obvious and the one that I needed to talk to my doctor about and the one that I needed to go and see a pain specialist and a therapist for, Addiction has always been a part of my life, right? From from my youngest days of when I realized that I did the things that I didn't want to do and I did not do the things that I wanted to do. And there's a great author, Gerald May, who talks about the reality that the addictive process 
is he's like, I don't, he's, I'm not trite at all, but in all my years as a therapist, the addictive process is at work in each one of us. It's just sometimes drugs and alcohol are the most obvious. So when you're thinking about addiction, you're not just thinking about it in terms of drug abuse and alcoholism. You're thinking about it more broadly because I can tell you, I mean, I have absolutely, in fact, there was a point in my life when I almost went to OA because, you know, in terms of food, food for me was the thing that brought comfort, that that filled that inner void um, that for me did come from early childhood trauma. Absolutely. And and that's where um, I, I kind of think it's, it's something of if someone says they've never struggled with any kind of addiction, I don't think that's some moral accomplishment. I think that's just a sign of moral blindness because it's not taking that hard look at your life of what are the things in our lives that we give ourselves over to in a way that maybe it gives us some sort of relief. Maybe it gives us a sense of control. Maybe it gives us some sort of good that we are seeking in our life. And I think that's one important thing to understand about addiction is addiction isn't the like constant pursuit of something bad, it's the pursuit, normally the pursuit of something good, like relief of pain or connection to others that goes wrong. And, and then it, it, it gets twisted aside. And that's where I think of, um, you know, if anyone's a Harry Potter fan, Hagrid and, and Norbert or a Lord of the Rings fan with, with the Frodo and his relationship with the ring, um, or even the gremlins where it's like you bring in something that's seemingly innocuous for a moment that serves some sort of positive purpose. And that might even be true for a little while, right? It might actually give you something that you need for a little while. And that's where the problem is that not that addiction never tells the truth. It's that our addictions only tell part of the truth. You know, so you you talk a lot about connection in the book. It's one of the things that I think it's toward the middle or the end of the book. You really start to dive into that. And I wonder if you can just share with us what you found there in terms of how disconnection fuels addiction in America. Absolutely. So this researcher, Bruce Alexander, saw that Vietnam study and he was looking at uh, he was looking at addiction rates and he specifically people study rats and people were focused just on the substance of like how addictive cocaine is or how addictive heroin is. And it's true. They are addictive. The the chemical hooks in them are tough to break, but he also noticed that they would do these studies and put these rats in what they called Skinner boxes. that were these small metal cages and they're all standardized so that you'd have that that kind of consistency you need for a medical experiment. And then they put in a bottle of water that was just pure water and then a bottle of water laced with cocaine or heroin. And what kept happening was they, the, the rats would go and they'd press the lever. And then within a few days, you'd normally have these rats that would just keep pressing the lever and they'd ignore food and they'd ignore water and they would overdose themselves or they would starve themselves. And he looked at that and he just was like, so what about those Vietnam veterans returning? How did that, how did that happen? And so he decided he wanted to create what he called rat park, where it was this huge cage with lots of like things for rats to play with little bits of paper, little bits of wood and lots of friends and mates for them to be with. And then there was those two bottles were in the cage 
And he kept running the experiment. And yeah, sometimes the, the, the rats would go and use some of the heroin-laced water, the cocaine-laced water, and some would be heavier users than others. But he was never able to have the same results that people were getting in these boxes. And so he started to wonder, maybe our society today looks a lot more like rats boxed up in cages than we would want to admit. Mm. And mm. wow. Ooh, Lord <laughs> Jesus. That's deep. <laughs> and and yeah. as we look at, you know, how this spread across suburban America in particular, right? With these these big houses separated from their from their from their neighbors, not knowing their neighbors. Yeah. That it's quite possible yes. that the American dream Preach it. Preach. That we hold up of this middle class life is a lot more like an isolated Skinner box than we would like to admit. And so then he dives into the studies with different native tribes, both in the U.S. and Canada um, and First Nation peoples there. And he goes back all the way back to like 1670 when the Hudson Bay Company is functioning over in Canada and how in their records, they said, we only hire people from the Orkney tribe because they are so much less likely to be alcoholics than our European employees. They're so much more responsible. We're going to hire the Orkney tribe. At one point, 78% of this company's um, Canadian employees were all from this one tribe. But then they took all these folks away from their native lands away from their practices, away from their culture, away from their language, and they put them up in these isolated settlements away from everything else and gave them lots of alcohol. And what happened? People became alcoholics. Addiction. Yes. Addiction. Of course. And so then I look back and he looks at Scotch-Irish. That's my heritage. My family, like... I've got great grandfathers on both sides who were severe alcoholics. One of them, we don't know what happened to him. He just disappeared sometime around prohibition. Um, and, you know, the Irish and Scotch Irish known as heavy drinkers. But once again, if you look back at their history, they became heavy drinkers, not when alcohol was introduced. It was like the alcohol was introduced to the Irish and Scotch-Irish well before they started having large population average problems. It was when they were moved off their lands and into working in the cities in tenements and in these mill buildings. That's when you had a huge increase of alcoholism. And so the, the idea, there are genetic factors to addiction, but we need to be careful because you know, like it's not far from saying, Native peoples or indigenous peoples or the Irish or whoever it is have a genetic predisposition to something. That's not a very far step away from saying there is some sort of inherent inferiority in people. Yes. Yeah. And it's just not true. And that's where there's this one great, um, the Alkali Lake Band. They're in British Columbia. And for a long time, they had a near 100%. Um, alcoholism rate within this one band. Um, when the chief and his wife uh, figured out not just how to, t they didn't just take AA or therapy or things like that. They reintegrated some of these like best practices into their own tradition. And today 
they have a 98% sobriety rate. And their statement is not just culture is a part of treatment. They actually say culture is treatment. That's how important these environments we are, are in. So one of the reasons I really wanted to share this book with the Freedom Road community is the profound way that you make the connections between addiction and race, the constructs of race, racial subjugation and white supremacy in the U.S. Can you talk to us about that? Talk to us about addiction and white patriarchy. Yes. And this this one, I think to start on this this thread, we need to go back to, to scapegoating. Okay. Right. And scapegoat theory. Um, and because this is when you start to get into not just individual addictions, but what I think are our societal addictions. And our society is addicted to the myth of redemptive violence. Ooh, snap. So I started saying recently, snappity doodle. <laughs> <laughs> like as a, like a, yeah, that's for real. Like, so like, this is it. Snappity doodle. Yeah, so talk well, I, to I us about com- that. That's a great compliment to get a snappity doodle <laughs> on your podcast. <laughs> okay. So we've just started something new here, but this is, <laughs> this is for real. Like that's deep. We are addicted to redemptive violence. And I mean, even just right now, like all the synapses are going in my mind, I can imagine you're going to go back to the Puritans, right? And like the scarlet letter and, and not just that, but even the fact that we have uh, most of our faith has come out of the Calvinist tradition. And it is, you know, it's, it's the cross, the redemptive cross of Jesus and how that connects to everything. So, okay, now that I've just thrown that out there, you go do it. (laughs) Do your thing. Yeah. So, you know, part of the, the scapegoating process is, you know, and Rene Girard's theory around it is that conflict would arise in communities mm-hmm. and over the desiring of the same things. And at some point that that conflict would arise, someone would get killed and then you'd have a temporary dissipation of the conflict because everybody gets in line after someone gets killed. Mm. And eventually these societies, it's thought, um, began to ritualize this violence, right? Where they saw like, okay, if if... If things seem to get better when we killed somebody, let's do it every year. Let's do it every se- every crop season. And then you have within the Jewish tradition, actually, that, that begins to become undermined because they create an actual scapegoat, right? Where the goat is sent out into the wilderness with the sins of the people saying, we don't need to kill anyone anymore. We need a moment where we come together to acknowledge the ways that we all have fallen short, the ways that we all are participating in this. But what happens, I think, in our society today, and this starts with you look back at the rise of of the crack epidemic. Mm, Yeah. Right. And instead of asking, what are the economic forces at play? Right. What are the ways that that our our public policy systematically denied people opportunity? What are the ways that our our ongoing biases, our ongoing racism makes people feel dehumanized every day that they might turn to a substance that maybe makes them feel powerful for a second or maybe makes them feel in control for a second. Yeah. And what are the ways that the government pumped that that stuff into our neighborhoods, making it more accessible? Yes. And actively contributing to this. Yeah. And instead of looking at these actual causes of addiction, we decided to find someone to blame. Mm. 
someone to punish. Because we don't have, I don't believe we have a criminal justice system in America. We have a criminal punishment system. Yeah, that's for real. And we punish people. And what it was, was we, we saw the rise of the crack epidemic and we fought a war, not even a, a war on drugs. We fought a war on people. Mm-hmm. We went after people. We locked up um, by the millions. And, you know, this was that bipartisan product, like Nixon with his war on drugs. You had Bush dramatically expand it. Then you had Clinton solidify this as a bipartisan approach. Mm-hmm. And the problem with scapegoating, right, is you've cast out, you think that our criminal justice, you know, our, our, our penitentiary system, our prison system is where we've cast people out to. Yeah. And we've gotten rid of the problem and, and we've, and society believes it's correctly identified the problem. And that, that hurts the people who are scapegoated immediately, right? That is an immediate harm to those people who are blamed, those people who are scapegoated. The problem was, is that the entire time it was a metastasizing cancer that was happening for white people. So kind of seeing, you know, the decline of the crack epidemic in the mid nineties. And then in 1996, Oxycontin was approved by the FDA and it was considered a minimally addictive opioid pain medicine. And so it was prescribed in suburbs and rural areas primarily to white people because of the fundamental belief like, oh, those people, those, and I'm using my air quotes, right? Those others, right? The others, they get addicted. We don't get addicted. There's something inside of us that protects us from addiction. And then within a few years, 1996, within a few years, by I think it was 2000 or 2001, opioid overdoses started to outstrip all cocaine-related overdoses. And it was spreading across the country, but no one was talking about it. Why? Because if you're, if you're like me, if you grow up in a good home, if you grow up in a middle-class place, you're not supposed to get addicted, so you can't talk about it. And so then when one person gets addicted, one person overdoses, they don't sound the alarm that, hey, maybe this is dangerous. They keep it quiet. And those obituaries for so long, it never said died of an overdose. It never said died of drug-related things. It always just said died of complications or died suddenly. And so no one talked about it for decades because of this false belief, right? This belief of normative whiteness that everyone needs to adhere to our standard of whiteness of what that means. And so when wait, they, wait, wait, when, wait, wait, before you, before you go forward that, hold that thought, but it's the thought this, I want to just break that down for a minute. It's the thought of normative whiteness as in whiteness is normal and healthy. So whiteness is well. So if you are unwell so, and you're white, something's wrong with you. It's like a, it's a shameful thing that needs to be hidden. Wow. Okay, go on, go forth. <laughs> no, that, and that's, and that is, and it's the same with, with the patriarchy, right? Like this is not, this is not masculinity, right? This is not a healthy sense of, of the masculine. This is what if I'm not in control, something's wrong with me. 
right? And this is where when we believe in, and I like, I've been following Christina Cleveland. She always just uses lowercase, all one word. When we follow the white male God, right? Who has to be the one in control, who has to be at the top. And when we believe that we are only significant insofar as we are like white male God, mm-hmm. when that begins to break down, when that myth falls apart, when you lose your factory job in Ohio, when you lose your mining job in West Virginia, then you say something's wrong with me. And that's when you turn to, and this is, oh, I, you know, part, one of the things I think that it's opioids in particular is so we all know the the probably the chemical endorphins. Yeah. Right? It's the bonding chemical, the molecule of emotion, the molecule that makes us feel love. Mm. Well, the word endorphin comes from the two words endogenous and morphine. Because the guy who discovered it realized how strikingly similar this internally occurring chemical was to the chemical morphine. So a lot of people, when they take an opioid, they feel a temporary sense of connection. They feel a temporary sense of meaning. They feel a temporary sense that they are loved. And so it's, it's this struggle out there that when you realize that I think this has gotten so bad because people are desperate for that sense of connection. And their brains, right, and part of how addiction works is it's no longer just your conscious thought, right? It's no longer just what you're thinking about of like, oh, I feel loved. This goes into our automatic selves, like the parts of us that we don't consciously access. And it tells us that this is what is giving us meaning and purpose. And the last big wave of the opioid epidemic So when there is something about yourself that you believe and it turns out to be not true, Mm -hmm. and then you have a chemical and a substance that brings back some sort of even temporary sense of meaning, purpose, love, and connection, you're going to turn to it. Wait a minute. Wait, wait, wait. I just had a synapse. So, so, okay. So I'm getting a picture. It's the picture of the white man who has been told his whole life that he is a little G God. Now, this is something I talk about a lot as well. In that little G God state, he is the definition of wellness and strength. And now he is unwell. He is not strong. And also economically, quite honestly, he's probably not that strong anymore because of the flailing economy and the ways that particularly middle class and poor white people have not fared as well as as the top 1%, right? So there's this sense of we should be doing well because we're white men, but we're not, and addicted to opioids. So now to substitute that sense of being well, there is this opioid. There is this thing that can fill that void. Is that the right picture? I think so. I, I think that's exactly it. And... If you look back, so, you know, morphine was not illegal. Um, Heroin wasn't illegal until I think like 1914, the Harrison Act. And when you look at like the turn of the century, uh, the primary person and one doctor wrote, he goes, I'm especially worried about women with flaxen hair and blue eyes, that they are going to become opium addicts because the primary opium addicts at the time were women. And it was prescribed to women oftentimes for 
quote unquote, women's complaints, nervous character. So all of these things that men deemed um, unbecoming of women at the same time that it was primarily the middle-class women who were, and one woman wrote about this in her journal, and I, I quote her on this, they were being denied a role in society, mm-hmm. but at the same time, no longer had their, the previous, like the previous roles of the kind of the economy of the home. So they had one part taken away from them and then weren't given the opportunity to do anything else. And then they had doctors saying, no, this is what a woman looks like. She looks, she looks docile and pleasant. And if you're not that, we're going to prescribe you opioids. Whoa. Wow. Okay, got it. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe. This is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thinking Cap is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment we find ourselves in, full of protests, anger, and activist momentum, Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. In all of your research to understand what happened to you, what did you learn about addiction that surprised you? That's a great question. One of the things that really put it into perspective for me was to understand that addiction does not come primarily out of a pursuit of something bad, but out of a pursuit of something good that becomes misguided. And when I look back at that moment for me, right, this was where it was so important for my doctor to to respond with empathy because he knew that I wasn't searching, like my primary goal was not to search for something bad, but to search for something good. And while I expressed, you know, I didn't have a lot of, uh, you know, I had a very great stable childhood. Um, anyone, they've done studies around people who spend extended periods of time in the ICU and over 80% experience um, symptoms of PTSD afterwards. So there was a traumatic experience that for me, I felt a sense of safety when I was, when I was taking this pain medicine. I felt a sense of control. And in that sense, addiction can be kind of this contradiction where it's simultaneously a loss of control, but you're seeking control. And the only thing I had control over when I was in the hospital was that ability to press a button every 15 minutes and feel a temporary sense of relief. And this is how deep this goes. So I get out of the hospital 
And I have the, you know, the line in my arm and every day I need to flush that line to keep it clear um, with a small syringe of salt water. And so I would hook up this syringe and I would press it through. And, you know, the syringe, it's a little bit cooler than your blood is. So you feel the coolness. Well, every time I did that, I felt this sense of euphoria, right? Just this blast of pleasure, this feeling of calm. And I didn't understand why it was until I found this study that shows um, that ritual is so important right? Like that addiction goes so far beyond just the chemical substances to everything that surrounds it, that my body, what was happening was I was pressing that in and my body had learned to associate that with the relief of opioids, that injection. And so even when I knew it was salt water, even when I looked at it and I did this for months, my brain had learned it so deeply, it released its own pain relieving endorphins uh, whenever I did that. And so in thinking about that, that depth of feeling um, <clears throat> and that sense of, uh, that sense of wellness, you also go back to that, that piece about love. One of the other amazing things learned about addiction is that when and your listeners might have heard this before, and it's true, is when you compare the brain scans of someone in the early stages of a cocaine addiction and love in the early stages of love, the brain scans look shockingly similar, right? And it has that, you know, your object of love, whoever you love, you just can't stop thinking about them. You also kind of lose time where, you know, these hours turn into minutes. And that's what happens oftentimes within addiction. But what they said, saw was as this moves on, the difference is, that addiction continues to spiral in, essentially in on itself, where all you can focus on is the object of your addiction and nothing else, where love actually starts to spiral outwards. Wow. And it, and it begins to increase the other areas of your brain that have pro-social behaviors associated with them. So it starts in the same place but the energy falls in and on itself in addiction and in love, it expands. So really, I know this is going to sound so cliche, but it's really true. All we actually really want is love. Absolutely. And that is, you know, one of the fundamental truths of the Christian tradition is that that love is what transforms us. Right. And so when we think about, about punishment, so this is one of the other things. Addiction, by its definition, is self-harm, right? You keep doing things that harm yourself. And we also know that addiction begins to um, destroy the parts of your brain that help you with long-term planning um, and being able to make long-term decisions. So the idea that we can incarcerate ourselves out of an addiction crisis is ridiculous, right? Because all you're doing is saying, I'm going to harm people who are already engaged in self-harm even more. Not only are you harming them, but you're disconnecting them. Like you're, you're literally putting a person in a cage in the same way that that rat was put in a cage before. Yes. You are, we are doing the exact opposite of what is required for healing. Wow. I don't think, Woo. and this is where... You know, I don't know the intent of all these lawmakers, 
But our criminal punishment system is set up to perpetuate addiction. It is set up to keep it going because it does. And this has been shown time and time again. So there's one study in Baltimore where they followed thousands of IV drug users for over a decade. And what the intent of this study was, was to demonstrate um, which programs to help people quit um, using drugs were most effective. Well, they didn't find out that because all that they found, the most consistent data they could find is that if you went, if at any point during that period you went to prison, you were less likely to recover. The people who were most likely to recover were those who didn't go to prison. When like looking at young juvenile offenders, there've been a lot great longitudinal studies on this, tens of thousands of kids. If a kid goes, a high school kid goes to jail, they are more likely to reoffend than if they have a diversionary, some sort of diversionary program. And that's especially true if it's happening around their junior or senior year of high school, because if it messes up their opportunity to continue their education, the likelihood of them being able to recover plummets. And so now taking some of these insights, there's this great program in Seattle called the LEAP program that instead of saying, hey, we're going we're gonna to hang this little carrot out on a stick and we're going to dangle it in front of you. And if you are able to kick your alcoholism or if you're able to kick your drug addiction, then we're going to give you housing. Then we're going to help you with a job. Then we're going to do all these other things. What they found is no, someone who has housing is actually more likely to overcome their addiction than someone who doesn't. Someone who can get a job is more likely to overcome their addiction than someone who doesn't. And this is also where we need to, you know, reform our expectations because one thing that, you know, we know from the Christian tradition is it's not like you have this moment in life where you convert and you then never have any problems in your life anymore. You never sin anymore. We need to understand that relapse is a part of recovery. It's not that you failed. It's just that's part of the journey. But relapse gets longer and worse if you feel like you can't be honest about it, if you're going to lose everything if it happens. It's when, you, it's when you know that you can come back and say, yeah, I fell back into it. I, like I messed up. That's when relapse starts to get shorter. And one other, and this is why I think this is so important for people to, to shift their understanding of addiction, was there was this other great study that was done, and they, they sent out um, these addiction specialists to three alcohol recovery centers and did training for the counselors who were there. And at the end of the training, they said, hey, we want to leave you guys with one other thing that we think will be a helpful tool. We've actually done an assessment on all of the patients who are here. And we have a special ranking system to figure out how likely it is that someone will uh, get sober and stay sober. And so here you go. Here's our list of everyone we think in your program has a high score and that they're going to get sober and stay sober. So they follow up six months later, 12 months later, they do all their check-ins and they were right almost to a person who is the most likely. And so it's like, great, you know, you, you guys cracked this code. What is it? And they said nothing. The only thing that changed is we randomly assigned people into the sober group. 
we randomly assigned people into the group we said weren't going to recover. The only thing that changed was the counselor's belief that this person could overcome their addiction. Wow. Okay, so think about all of the people who are locked in prison today. I can't get the number out of my head, the New York Times uh, article a couple of years ago that said that 1.5 million African-American men are missing from our communities because they've either been locked in jail or they're dead because of interactions with police officers and vigilantes. And think about the percentage of them that are in jail that are there because of drug busts, right? Or being picked up and having, having a dime bag of marijuana and then being put in jail for 15 years, right? Like I think about how we think of them, whether we think that they are capable of being well. And it's, it's society by, and I, why I say, I say we generously, right? It's, it's society's view of black men that basically has said, going back to the idea of white whiteness and white patriarchy, that black men are just not well. That chooses punishment rather than healing. And what does it say about the politicians that choose punishment rather than healing about their view of our world and their own citizens? Yeah, we have politicians, most of them who who look kind of like me, who I think have allowed their emotions, their explicit racism, their implicit racism, their normative whiteness, to shape a system that they thought was going to serve them, right? They thought it was going to serve their normative way of living, but because it's rooted in a lie, and this was, you know, going, I loved doing this exercise with you when we were working together. What's the lie? I, I've seen you do that brilliantly of bringing people together. What's the lie that we're believing right now? And I, one of the reasons why I'm excited about, about this book, I'm planning on going to my, you know, throughout my own home state of New Hampshire, connecting with groups in West Virginia, I'm connecting with groups in Ohio, um, because I want to free other, you know, white men, other European American men from the bonds that they don't even know they have right now. Yeah. So that's my question, Tim. How does America heal? How do we heal? What does resurrection require of us? And so I, I think there's a couple levels to try to jump on that. I'm going to go with the uh, kind of more public policy level first, right? Where I think we we need to tear down our criminal punishment system and we need to figure out what justice looks like, right? And right now, especially when we've, when, you know, across the country, um, with marijuana starting to be legalized, and it has been shown, you know, it was theorized, and it's now been demonstrated in state after state, if you decriminalize or legalize marijuana, drug overdoses go down. It's just 
proven across the board. That's true. And then if you look even further than that, and this is, you know, I, I cite this and I, I say it with like a grain of salt of every country's different. We need to figure out our own path. But one country we need to look to to learn some lessons is Portugal. Portugal, you know, 10, 15 years, huge overdose crisis. Their population was using IV heroin at a higher rate. Almost 1% of the population was addicted. Even in the United States, we still haven't hit that high of a percentage. And what they decided to do was that nothing is working. And we're going to actually ask the experts who work with people who are addicted. And we're going to say, what do we need to do? And they worked on it. And they said, what, we, what we're going to do is we're actually going to decriminalize all drugs. The war on drugs is not a war on drugs. It's a war on people. It's failed. It has come at a tragic cost of exactly as you said over 1.5 million that's just and those are just the beginning numbers i mean if we started to dive into it those numbers would just keep going up of the lives that have been wasted and lost and they said we're going to start spending more money on treatment than we are on punishment and they did today they spend over 55 percent of their money on treatment instead of punishment and if you are caught with a small amount of drugs, you go before a panel and they say, what do you need? A job? Do you need a house? Do you need counseling? Do you need therapy? And if you don't need it now, we'll be here when you're ready. And so I was looking through the statistics and I was like, oh, okay. So they're, you know, everybody assumed that this would be a terrible failure, right? That you'd have drug seekers from across the world coming to Portugal and, and descend on their shores but the last numbers I saw, their overdose rate was about six per million. And I was looking at it and was like, oh, okay, so the EU is about 26 per million. And I was like, oh, what's, and I go back through to look up the United States overdose rate. And I was like, oh, okay, 19.6. I was like, so Portugal's doing a lot better. And then I checked my math and I was like, wait a minute. It's actually, the United States has such a high overdose rate, we stopped counting in per million and we started counting per 100,000. So the correct comparison is in Portugal, it's six per million. In the United States, it's 196 per million. My jaw just dropped. That's, oh my God. that's not a small difference. And this, this shows... That the like this myth of redemptive violence, this myth that we can just punish people enough, if we can just make them hurt enough, that they're going to change, that they're going to transform. We know that's not the truth. We just celebrate, we're recording this right after Easter. We record and we celebrate that it is love and grace that transforms us. And that what we see at the cross is that God enters into our world. God enters in, became flesh and blood and enters into our suffering. And that is, then I think the spiritual lesson, right? Is that we know that there is a God who is present. We know that there's a God who's entering into our, our suffering. And now when I, you know, just am out and I start talking to people and I know they don't agree with me politically on much, I, but they are pulling their, they, everybody who I talk to in New Hampshire knows someone who struggled with an opioid addiction and they are ready to ask, what are the big system changes we need? Because, you know, well, they are now seeing the problem that has been there all along. Right. And we need to keep working for people to have eyes to see. And this is where, you know, diving into one of your uh, previous guests, Ruby Sales, 
where, and I don't know if she said this in your podcast or if I heard it in another talk, she goes, I don't like to say marginalized people because that assumes that you know where the center is. That's Ruby. <laughs> um, and that somehow, you know, that, that the people who have been pushed away are, yeah, that's, and so it's this beautiful thing. And, you know, she, she says, I don't know what, what's her other line. It's not white privilege. It's white soul suicide. And that's where I, I see part of my responsibility in working for justice is, is to go to my, my brothers and to go to my, my sisters who, who have believed this and they are enveloped in it because they go to church on Sunday and they, they get this normative whiteness, this normative patriarchy. Um, they watch, flip on the TV and they watch Fox News and they are fed it. And, and they don't know the kind of bondage they're in. And that, that for me is a place where I've seen enough of it and I've been connected to it enough. I've felt that struggle enough in my own life that I, I hope that I can be a missionary to kind of my own folks, right? That this is not about going into a foreign land and trying to introduce an American imperialism. This is about going to my own people and saying, we've got this wrong. We've been lied to, but there's a truth that can set us free. Mm. So for listeners who are struggling with addiction today, right now, what resources and processes do you recommend for healing? First, you know, I, I just think is the spiritual truth that we are all addicted and that that is not something that separates people from each other, but is in each of our own lives. And so if that has ever been a question in the back of anyone's head of how's my relationship to this, to this behavior or, or to a substance or even to a way of thinking, right? To a way of thinking where we realize the ways that in the past we have made, you know, you know, I try to figure out every day how I can recover from my own normative whiteness or the own, my, the patriarchy that I've been enveloped in, um, is to sit with that and to practice compassionate curiosity. And compassionate curiosity doesn't say, you know, you don't say internally like, oh, I messed up again. Of course I messed up. And that, that of course I messed up either goes to outside blame. This person drove me to do it. Or it goes internal and it says, of course I messed up. I'm a bad person, but bad people do bad things, right? And that's the, the shame that shuts us down. And so I'd encourage any listener, like, if this is something that you've been struggling with or you've been thinking about, don't fear that conversation with yourself. Feel free to ask it in a compassionate way and ask yourself, what is the good that I've been trying to get? What is it that I have been trying to achieve or to feel? Um, or what is it that makes me feel defensive? What is the lie about what I need to be, right? Am I holding on to this lie that I need to, to be perfect, right? Because when Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect, he's referring to a particular characteristic of God. And those characteristics of God are named in the Beatitudes just before that. It's named in, in the loving your neighbor as yourself, Exactly. It's about love, love perfectly. Exactly. And it's not about, you know, be all, it's about wholeness. And that's where one of the contrasts I make is I, I've, I've started to write holiness, W-H-O-L-I-N-E-S-S. 
that it's about that wholeness, not about a separation from the world or these different things. And when you're able to practice that compassionate curiosity with yourself, that's also when you can open yourself up to get the help that you need. And that is something of um, Alcoholics Anonymous as a a path or Narcotics Anonymous as a path that a lot of people take. And it also tends to be a good local resource and connection point to others. And that isn't for everyone. One thing, like a couple things to watch for is if you are looking at any local resources, um, a few of the methodologies that have been proven to work, right? It's not just kind of this general we hope or we think um, two practices are cognitive behavioral therapy and motivational interviewing, as well as looking at medically assisted treatment. There's a lot of stigma around medically assisted treatment but it has been time and time again shown to reduce um, overdoses by over 50% in those who receive counseling and a medically medically assisted treatment. And sometimes it's criticized as like, oh, well, isn't that just a crutch because you're replacing one substance with a new substance? My response to that is always, and if you've got a broken foot, you need a crutch. And addiction is something that can hurt the very systems that can help get you out of it. And medically assisted treatment is a way to provide a temporary uh, sustenance, a temporary block, a temporary uh, dam to keep those cravings at bay. And it's important not to feel any shame if that's a path you end up needing to go down. Absolutely. So I think that maybe the most important thing is for people to actually have that compassionate conversation with themselves and to ask, honestly, for me, even just right now, that, that question of what is the good that I'm actually wanting, that I'm trying to get, and then get it, get the actual good, not the fake good, and, and to, to do what works for you to get that. So whether it's NA or AA or OA, <laughs> in my case, or something else cognitive therapy or any of the others, just do what works for you so that you can get the the actual good. Yeah. And the, the amazing thing about recovery, right, and resurrection is resurrection isn't going back to an old, right? One of the hallmarks of addiction is that people, they, they call it often chasing the dragon, right? Where you have this desire to go back to something, to go back to that first experience. But part of the problem is when you want to go back, you, you, you begin to mythologize and you create a story about this thing that I'm going back to because you just want to keep recreating it. And so to recreate it, you just keep doing more and more of that which is actually killing you. And so one of the greatest signs of societal addiction is the desire to go back to an America that never was. It's the desire to make America great again. It's a sign of addiction. But the beauty there is that there was a study done of, of, with brain scans of people um, with cocaine addictions. And you know addiction can reduce both the gray matter and the white matter in your brain. And the... <clears throat> when they were looking at the reductions of, of this in people's brains, uh, they were comparing it to a brain of someone who had never been addicted. And the good news is within six months of someone being clean from cocaine, um, they, the, that matter that had been destroyed began to return. Within a year, it was back to previous levels. 
And then soon after that, 18 months to two years later, there was actually more of it and it was denser. So those parts of your brain that help with self-control, that help with long-term brain, like long-term planning actually can come back stronger than ever before. And that's because that resurrection is a promise not just to go back, but of something new. It's the birth of new life. And that is the promise of Easter. And I think that's the promise of what can happen if we commit as a country to a recovery together. Because what is good for people who are struggling with addictions is good for all of us. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded at the studios of the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dult of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC, a consulting group that coaches and trains and designs experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action for a more just world. And you can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates, and we promise we will not flood your inbox. That's, That's a serious promise. Um, And we invite you to listen again next month. New episodes drop around the first day of each month. And let me just say, we are really, really, really excited for next month and the month after that's um, episodes. We're going to be doing a very special two-part series on immigration and exploitation. I'll actually be taking a pilgrimage that will help us to understand the history of America's understanding of immigration and how we have come to see immigrants in America. And we're going on the road. You're going to hear me crunching on the gravel, (laughs) crunching on the ground, and also having an experience with some friends as well. So, So definitely tune in next month. So new episodes drop around the first day of each month. Join the conversation on Freedom Road. 